0: Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Come on in. Grab a seat here. We're going to get started here this morning. Welcome to Weymouth Community Church. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet or if this is your first time with us or watching online, uh, my name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. It's great to, to be with you all once again as we, uh, as we worship together. Uh, just a few uh, things to note here as we get started, uh, what's going to happen is we're going to uh, pray together. Then we're going we're gonna to sing some songs, uh, have uh, a children's lesson, and then we're going to dismiss the, the the kids to Children's Church. Um, so if you haven't yet, you can sign your kid in at the desk right through those back doors. Uh, and then at the end of our service, we're going to have a time of communion around the Lord's table, and we're going to invite the kids and the Children's Church volunteers to come back for that time. So just if you're a parent, if you have young kids, just be aware that they'll be coming back at the end for communion uh, to sit with you. So keep that in mind as we go through the service this morning and then just uh, two other announcements uh, we are putting out uh, our volunteer opportunities for VBS this summer and for our uh, ambassador soccer camp this summer so if you'd be interested in serving in either of those uh, areas we have VBS which is going to be June 19th through 21st and we have soccer camp which is going to be here July uh, 18th to 22nd uh, and hosting is going to be 16th to 23rd for that so if you'd be interested in hosting a coach for soccer camp or serving during VBS in some way, uh, there, there's information on the back table, there's information in the Church Center app uh, on our website, weymouthchurch.com. So be sure to check all of that out if you'd be interested in volunteering in those areas. Um, and then speaking of VBS, there is a VBS meeting uh, right after this service uh, in in the Sunday school classroom back there, in that hallway, uh, for anybody who's interested in learning more about serving and getting more details about what's going to be happening during VBS, so uh, be sure to to participate in that today following the service. Uh, as we get started this morning, let's just take a few moments in the quiet of our own hearts uh, to pray and to prepare our hearts for worship. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Gracious Father, this morning, as we come to worship you, as we Continue in this season of of preparation for Easter here in a a number of weeks, Lord. We just uh, ask that you'll forgive us for our sins, Lord, as we uh, uncover our iniquity, as we confess our sins to you, as we uh, confess all of the ways we've fallen short this week, all the ways we've chased after other idols, all the ways we've turned uh, to other things and turned away from you, Lord. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive our iniquity, Lord, not because of anything we have done but because of all you have done for us in Christ, Lord, that he is our hiding place, that in him we have hope and security. In him we have uh, s- uh, satisfaction, we have provision and grace, Lord. So help us to rest in him and to praise you in response for how you have forgiven us for our sins, how you have delivered us in your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. 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 Well, please stand and sing with us. <laughs>
1: I said, assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my soul. Praising my Savior day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my side, angels descend all the day long Perfect submission All is at rest I in my Savior Am happy and blessed Watching and waiting Looking above Filled with His goodness Lost in His love This is my soul.
0: I'm going to invite the uh, kids to come on up. So any kids, fifth grade and below, and come on up to the front here. We're going to do our children's catechism lesson. What's up, guys? So, you okay? <laughs> Good to see you. Welcome. All right. All on one side. That makes it easy for me. I like it. Welcome. Good morning. Everybody doing okay this morning? Yeah. See, we've got a little dinosaur with us. That's cool. Little blue guy. Nice. Well, I have something to show you guys this week. It's something I kind of, I made a little bit of a mess, right? I had some paper in my office and something happened and I kind of crumpled, it got crumpled up. It got kind of crumpled up. I may or may not have been playing basketball with my trash can. Um, So I have this crumpled up piece of paper. Now, what do I need to do to make this like good again, to make this a good normal piece of paper? What do I need to do? What? Unwrap it. Unwrap it? Okay, would somebody like to unwrap it for me? Here, pass it all the way down to the end. Let's see if you can do it. Pass it along, pass it along. See if you can do it. See how long it takes. Nice. Good form. <laughs> Just immediately gets me. I love it. Um, all right, now how does that look? Does that look like a good piece of paper? Is that look like something you'd want to write or draw on? No, why not? It's crumpled up still. Yeah, I kind of made too much of a mess of it. You can still see all the wrinkles and all the lines, right? So, see, the paper was crumpled up, it was messed up, and even though we can try and make it right, even though we can try and fix it up ourselves, there's still wrinkles, there's still a mess, right? Now, I want us thinking about that because our catechism question this week, we've been talking about how Jesus is our Redeemer, how Jesus is our Rescuer, um, how He comes and He's paid the price for our sins, He died in our place. Uh, And so that through him, we can be forgiven, we can be adopted, we can be brought back into God's family. But our question this week is, uh, what else does Christ's death redeem? That's question number six here. What else does does Christ's death redeem? What else does Christ's death rescue or restore? And the answer is that Christ's uh, death, it's the beginning of the redemption and renewal of every part of fallen creation. So because of our sin, which we talked about about several months ago in our catechism, because of all the ways we've rebelled against God, all the ways we've broken his law, not just our own hearts, but our entire world is broken, is corrupted, is wrinkled and crumpled up and messed up. And there's nothing that we can do on our own to perfectly fix that, to perfectly get rid of sin, to perfectly restore and make things right again. Um, But what Jesus has done in his coming and his death and in his resurrection Uh, that he did to redeem us personally, that's also the beginning of what God is doing to redeem and restore everything, redeem and restore all of creation. Uh, The end of the Bible isn't just a bunch of people who believed in Jesus living up in the clouds and singing songs and playing on harps. No, what God has done is in Jesus, he has started a process of redeeming and restoring the whole world so that it's like, instead of uh, trying to put back together these crumpled pieces, he completely and perfectly restores it into a, new piece of paper into a brand new white sheet of paper he's going to make all things new and he started that process in jesus and so one day if you believe in jesus we're not just going to live up on the clouds somewhere playing harps we're going to live in a restored creation the bible tells us that jesus is going to come back and he's going to judge the world and then he's going to make everything right restore all things and so in jesus not only can our own hearts be restored not only can our own hearts be forgiven But in Jesus, we know that he's going to make everything right. So that one day there's going to be a world without sickness, without death, without suffering, without injustice or unfairness. And so we can be a part of that now as we seek to help uh, make things right in our neighborhoods and our schools and our communities as we seek to share the love of Christ with people um, and to serve and care for people in places of brokenness around us. We're pointing them to the fact that only Jesus can ultimately restore them, can ultimately make them completely brand new. Because He's starting this process of redemption and restoration. And we can be part of that through faith in Him. Make sense? Make sense? Any questions? Good job, you guys. Let's pray. Um, Gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word which paints such a beautiful, wonderful, eternal picture of the redemption and the restoration that You uh, have accomplished, are accomplishing, will accomplish in and through Christ, Your Son. We thank You that in Him, if we believe in Him, we can Uh, be redeemed, we can have our hearts restored, we can be brought back into relationship with you. We thank you also that in him you are working through your church, through your kingdom, and ultimately in the coming of Christ to restore all things, that you are not a God who leaves things broken, but you are a God who brings justice and righteousness, grace and mercy, and who is making all things new. So help us to praise you because of that, help us to participate in this mission that you are carrying out in Christ and in your church and in your world. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, thanks, guys. Well, you're going to go to Children's Church here with Mr. and Mrs. Pixton, and the rest of us are going to stand and sing another song together. Oh, thank you very much.
2: Uh, I'm Russell Kennebrew, one of the elders here. For our scripture passage this morning is Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 34. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when he grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread to give them it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down with groups, in groups on a green grass. And they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all. Then all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you. Lord, we are grateful to you for what you have done. And Father, and it is through the power of the cross that we have life with you. We thank you that you showed compassion upon us in coming to us and and that you sent your son to us. Father, we pray that we too will share that compassion with those around us as well. Father, we commit our time to you this morning as we continue to worship you in spirit and in truth, that your name will be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, Russ,
0: for reading God's word for us. We're continuing on here in our series in the book of Mark, Mark 6. And uh, in this chapter, Mark 6, uh, what we've been looking at and what we have is we have a tale of two feasts. We have a tale of two feasts here in the middle of this chapter. Last week we looked at the, the horrific and gruesome banquet uh, that was thrown by Herod that resulted in the death of John the Baptist. And then in our text this morning, Mark gives us another feast, another feast that couldn't be more different than the feast thrown by Herod. This feast here before us this morning, it doesn't take place in the halls of power, but it takes place in a wilderness retreat. It's centered not on a maniacal plot, but on a messianic miracle. It results not in the destruction of death, but in the provision of life. And at the head of this feast is not a cornered ruler, but a compassionate shepherd. And so let's take a look at this feast this morning, let's take a look at this miracle, and as we do so, what we'll see is we will see the compassion and the provision of Christ. That's our big idea, our heading for this morning, that in this feeding of the 5,000, we see the compassion and the provision of Christ. And so we'll look at each of these this morning. First, we'll look at the compassion of Christ in verses 30 to 34, and then the provision of Christ in verses 35 to 44. So look with me first at the compassion of Christ here, starting in verse 30. Because remember, what's been happening is, uh, earlier in the chapter, Jesus, he sent his disciples out on a mission of proclamation and of healing. And then Mark inserted his narrative about Herod's banquet and John's execution in the middle of that mission. But now here in verse 30, we return to the apostles, which is a word that just means sent ones. In verse 30, where the apostles return from their, I guess you could call it mission trip, right? They come home, they return to Jesus, and they tell him about uh, everything that they did, everything that they saw, everything that happened. So the disciples have returned to Jesus, and as they return, Jesus invites them to come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. He's inviting his disciples to come and retreat with him into the wilderness. Into an uninhabited place where they can be alone, where they can rest and pray. And this follows a pattern that we've seen throughout the book of Mark, that we see throughout the Gospels, where after surrounding uh, intense moments of ministries or important parts, or important points in his ministry, Jesus often withdraws by himself into a desolate place, an uninhabitable place, a wilderness place. We saw this uh, before his baptism. Uh, we see it here before the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus often will withdraw, will retreat uh, before and after key moments or intense moments of ministry. This has been the pattern of Jesus, and now it's the pattern that he invites his disciples into. And in, 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 in this invitation, we see the compassion of Christ for his disciples. We see the heart of God who created the world and who rested on the seventh day of creation. And who did so not because he uh, needed to rest, but he did so to set a pattern for us to sanctify rest as a good gift from our creator. And so as you look at this narrative this morning, one thing that immediately uh, strikes us is that as we too go out on the mission of Christ, as we too participate in his call and his mission, it's important for us to also follow the pattern of Christ. It's important for us to also find our own uh, and embrace our own rhythms of rest. It's important for us to rest in the midst of this mission because this rest reminds us that this mission doesn't ultimately depend on us. It's not something that we carry out in our own power. It's something that we are relying on God to accomplish in us and through us as a church. And so as we go, as we embrace this time of revitalization, of engaging in the mission of Christ in this community, Are we taking times of intentional rest, times of withdrawal, of retreat, into prayer, into rest with Christ? So in his compassion, Jesus, he invites his disciples, he invites us into this rest. But in Mark's narrative, this rest is interrupted, this invitation is interrupted. Because the crowds that have been flocking around Jesus and his disciples, they see them get into a boat, and they see them go to the other side, they see where they're going, and Mark tells us that the crowd uh, got out and ran out on foot and uh, got to the place they were going before them. And as I read this, I thought, of, uh, I thought of a picture, and it's kind of a silly picture, but I thought of the opening scene in the film A Hard Day's Night. I don't know if you've seen this film, it's, it's, it's from the 60s, it's a movie that actually stars the Beatles, Right? Uh, special thanks to my dad, Mike Durbin, for introducing my brother and I to the Beatles cinematic universe. I didn't know if, I didn't know if you knew that was a thing, that they made movies as well. Um, but in this one movie in particular, you see the movie opens, and, you, and you, see, uh, you see John and Ringo and George, and they're running away from this huge mob of fans, and they're running and hiding throughout the streets of London from Beatlemania, right? From all these fans that are chasing them and trying to get a piece of them. And you see Paul just hiding in a telephone booth with just a beard on, right? He's, he's just hiding from the crowd. He's got it figured out. And so I thought of this scene of this, just this raging crowd chasing uh, the Beatles. But when I thought of it, it struck me that that is not how Jesus responds when he sees this crowd. When Jesus comes ashore, when he steps off the boat on the other side, he sees this huge crowd of people waiting for him. But when he sees this crowd, he doesn't flee. He doesn't try and hide. He doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't complain to his disciples, that they're ruining their rest, they're ruining their retreat. No, Mark tells us that when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them. When he sees them, he doesn't get frustrated, he doesn't flee, he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And this imagery of, of sheep without a shepherd this isn't the first time that this kind of description has been used in the bible back in the old testament in the first five books of the bible in the book of numbers which is a book that tells us about the israelites and about their time in the wilderness in numbers 27 god tells moses who is the leader of the israelites he tells moses to go up to mount Aberim and to look out into the promised land that he's going to take god's people Because Moses is going to soon die. He's not going to enter into the promised land with his people. So God says, go up onto the mountain, look out, see the promised land, and then you'll be gathered to your people. And in response, Moses asked the Lord, he says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. See, as he anticipates his own death, Moses, he asks the Lord to raise up a successor, to raise up another man who can lead and shepherd God's people, who can lead them so that they won't be like dim-witted sheep lost and wandering without a shepherd. And God answers Moses' prayer. He raises up Joshua to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And then now here we fast forward to Mark 6. And here Jesus, he steps onto the shore of another wilderness, of another desolate place. And he too sees a great crowd of God's people. And like Moses, Jesus has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They're like dim-witted animals running about, wandering, longing for someone to lead them, longing for a shepherd who can bring them into the promised land. Jesus sees them and he has compassion on them. And this shepherd imagery in a wilderness place is very, it's intentional here in Mark's gospel. It points us back to men like Moses and Joshua, who shepherded God's people in the wilderness. But it also points us forward to Christ, who's the new Moses, who's the greater Joshua, who's the true shepherd of God's people, even in the wilderness. So when Jesus sees this crowd, he responds not with frustration or fear. He doesn't hide or flee. He has compassion on them. He is filled with tender mercy and pity for them because they are his people and they are wandering in the wilderness. And so in his compassion, he goes to them and he begins to teach them He teaches them right there in the wilderness, right there in that desolate place. And what this shows us is that the heart of Jesus is a heart of compassion for his people. Our sheepiness, our foolishness, our sin, our wandering. It doesn't lead Jesus to flee from us. It doesn't lead Jesus to lash out in frustration at us. It leads Jesus to move towards us with a heart full of tender mercy and steadfast love. A heart that meets us where we are even in the wilderness with the gracious provision of God's grace. And so that leads us then from The compassion of christ to secondly the provision of christ in verses 35 to 44 and this is where we see the the full picture the full account of this miracle the provision of christ so allow me to set the scene Uh, the men were hungry they were unsure of how to feed such a large crowd of people but then someone comes and uh, gives and approaches the teacher with a, a small amount of bread in a sack which wasn't nearly enough to feed such a great crowd. This is happening. Someone brings uh, this small supply to the teacher, and looking at this meager offering then, the prophet Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. And in response, his servant declared, How can I set this before a hundred men? And so Elisha repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So the servant, he set the 20 loaves and he set the loaves of barley and the fresh ears of grain before 100 men and they all ate and there was some left over according to the word of the Lord. Now obviously what I just described is not the account of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6. It's actually the feeding of the 100 in 2 Kings 4 verses 42 to 44. In that account we have the narrative of how in a time of famine God worked through the prophet Elisha Take a meager offering of bread to feed uh, 100 men and have some left over. Now, does that sound familiar? Right? This is what's going on. If you were an early Jewish reader reading Mark's gospel for the first time, then when you read this account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people, your mind would have quickly turned to the story of Elisha in 2 Kings, quickly turned to the story about a prophet who was used by God to bring miraculous provision to God's people in a time of famine. Because what we see as we read our Bibles, what we see is that throughout the Bible, God is revealed to us as a God who is always providing for his people. He's revealed to us as a God who provides for his people, especially in the wilderness and especially in times of famine. One of the great examples of this in the Old Testament Uh, is when the people of Israel were wandering in the desert for 40 years after they had been freed from slavery in Egypt. As they were wandering in the desert, God, he provided manna from heaven. He provided manna that fell from the skies and landed on the earth that they could pick up and eat. And that is how God fed his people for 40 years in the wilderness. And then later, God went on to work through prophets like Elijah and Elisha to miraculously provide for his people in times of need. And all of these acts of gracious provision throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, they all point us to God's greatest act of gracious provision in Christ. Because by feeding 5,000 men here in Mark 6, Jesus, he's not just doing a magic trick. He's not just showing off. He is linking himself to prophets like Elisha and like Moses. But he's doing even more than that. He's not just, Jesus isn't just showing that he's another prophet like these prophets that have come before. Jesus is showing that he's actually the ultimate prophet, the greater prophet, the greatest prophet who has come to bring ultimate provision from God. And we can see this by comparing the details of Christ's feeding miracle with the details of other feeding miracles in the Bible. So let's do that. First, uh, remember the setting here. Jesus, he's withdrawn into a desolate place, into an uninhabited area. And this calls to mind the biblical imagery of the wilderness. And Jesus' disciples, they take note of this. They come to him and they say, this is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. They come to Jesus and they want to know, hey, Jesus, we've been teaching these people for so long. We're in a desolate place. Uh, How are we going to feed these people? We need to send them away so that they can go get something to eat. They want to know how Jesus, how they're going to provide food for all these people in the middle of a wilderness. But they forget that God has fed his people in the wilderness before. By Christ, by his miraculously providing bread to feed all of these people in the wilderness, he's clearly pointing us back to how God provided bread miraculously to feed his people in the wilderness in the time of Moses. How he brought manna from heaven to provide food and provision for his people in the midst of a wilderness. Christ's miracle here is meant to bring that to mind, to bring that, uh, that manna from heaven to mind as we think about this wilderness setting. Mark wants us to see that in Christ, once again, God is bringing gracious and miraculous provision for his people, even in a desolate place. And beyond the setting then, the the details around the elements uh, in the miracle, they they help us see uh, what Jesus is trying to communicate here. They're striking to us, especially when we compare the details of Jesus' miracle with the miracle of Elisha in 2 Kings. Because Elisha, he was tasked with feeding 100 men, whereas Jesus faced the challenge of feeding 5,000 men. And then later in Mark, he'll feed another 4,000 men. And Elisha, he uh, had, was given 20 loaves of barley and some ears of grain to work with. And Jesus was given five loaves of bread and two fish. And so when compared with Elisha, Jesus has more mouths to feed, and he has less raw materials to work with, right? And so what this shows us is, is that there is a, an increase here. There's a contrast, and the contrast shows how much greater Jesus' miracle is than Elisha. Because in both cases, all are miraculously fed, but even the results speak to this. After Elisha's miracle, there was some left over, but after Jesus' miracle, we're told there was 12 basketfuls left over. The comparison here makes it abundantly clear that as miraculous as Elisha's feeding was, uh, Jesus' miracle blows Elisha's out of the water. It is so much greater. It is abundantly greater, and we're meant to see that. We're meant to think of that as we're reading our Bibles, because by keeping this comparison in mind, we can see that Jesus, he's not just another prophet. In a long line of prophets, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is the greatest prophet who has come to call God's people to repent, who has come to bring God's ultimate provision. And this is important for us to see because this question of Jesus' identity is the core question that we're working through here in this section of Mark. It's the core question that's being asked earlier in the chapter in verses, uh, what was that, earlier in the chapter where um, we're in Herod in verses 14 through 15 when he's throwing his banquet and people are talking about uh, Jesus and his miracles, the question is being asked who is this guy? People are saying, some say it's John the Baptist, some say it's Elijah, some say it's another one of the prophets. And this question of Jesus' identity is what prompted Herod's whole flashback that reminded us about what happened to John the Baptist. So This question of Jesus is there earlier in chapter 6, and it's going to be there later in chapter 6 when Jesus walks on the water. And his disciples see Jesus walk on water, and Mark tells us in verses 51 and 52 that after Jesus walked on the water, his disciples were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, at this point in the book of Mark, what's happening is that the miracles of Jesus are driving us full throttle to ask the question about Jesus' identity. Ask who is this guy? Who is this man who can do these miraculous things? Who has this astounding authority to accomplish such abundant or awe inspiring miracles? Is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah or Elisha? Is he something more? Is he just another one of the prophets or is he something greater? And in particular, what Mark is doing here in this section of his gospel is he is laying out for us the frustrating process of the disciples. (laughs) coming to understand who Jesus is. Disciples are going through this process. It's like a roller coaster. They're going through this process of of fits and starts. Sometimes they seem like they're starting to get who Jesus is, and then the next time they don't get it. They see Jesus miraculously feed 5,000 people. They see Jesus walk on water, and yet their hearts are still hardened. They are amazed. They are astounded. They don't understand about the loaves. They don't get the message Jesus is trying to communicate in his miracles yet. The message about who he is. And so, this feeding of the 5,000, both in where it's placed in Mark's gospel and in its allusions to the Old Testament, this, this feeding is a pivotal miracle in the ministry of Jesus. It's meant to start breaking open our expectations and our understanding of who Jesus is. Because Jesus here, he's not just reenacting the miracles of the prophets, he's doing things that are far greater than any prophet has ever done before. One greater than Elisha is here. Because not only are the miracles of Christ greater than the miracles of any prophet before, but the provision that Christ has come to bring is greater than any provision brought by the prophets before. He's come to bring a greater provision. Because in the Old Testament God used prophets like Moses and Elisha to bring provision for God's people. And here in Mark 6, Jesus too, he comes and he brings provision for God's people. He brings healing and food in miraculous ways. But what makes Jesus greater than all the prophets, what reveals him to us as the Son of God, is that Jesus didn't just come to bring our provision. Jesus came to be our provision. Jesus didn't just come to bring manna from heaven. He came to be our manna from heaven. In John 6, uh, after John records his account of the feeding of the 5,000, of Jesus walking on water, Jesus, in John's gospel, he declares this to his disciples in John six thirty-two. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread Always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, according to John and his gospel, the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach in his feeding of the 5,000, the lesson he's trying to communicate in this display of his authority to miraculously provide bread for God's people, even in the wilderness, Jesus is trying to reveal that he himself is the true bread from heaven. That he himself is the ultimate provision from the Father. That he is the bread of life and whoever comes to him shall never hunger. Whoever comes to him, whoever believes in him, shall never thirst. He's saying all those other things you chase in the world, all those other things you think are going to fill you up and satisfy you, all those relationships you chase, those things in your job, those things in your family, things in your house, things in your career, things in your own heart and your own emotions, all those things you think are going to provide ultimate satisfaction. They're not going to fill you up the way you need to be filled. All those attempts to obey the law, to make things right on your own, to save yourself, to fill yourself up with good works or to fill yourself up with self-righteousness, none of that is going to satisfy you. None of your obedience, none of your effort, none of your achievement. It is only in coming to Jesus, the bread of life, to receiving the provision of God's grace that only He brings in Himself. It's only in Him that we find a provision that truly satisfies, that we find true satisfaction for our hunger, true satisfaction for our thirst. It's only in coming to Him, in Him alone, and nothing else in this world, that we find that we don't need to hunger anymore, that we are no longer thirsty. If this wasn't enough, this display here in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus, uh, he gets this point across even more clearly uh, on the night he was arrested. Uh, Because the night before his death, the night when he was arrested, Jesus, he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And as he celebrated Passover with them, he instituted the ordinance of communion, an ordinance which we're going to share in here in a moment. So Jesus, during this last supper with his disciples, just as he had done before feeding the 5,000, he takes the bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it. But this time, as he did so, he said, take this is my body. And he took a cup, and after he had given thanks for the cup, he gave it to them, they drank it, and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You see, Jesus is declaring through the book of Mark, through his miracles, through his feeding the 5,000, that he is the bread of life. He is the ultimate provision from God the Father. And then in the last supper and the symbol of the bread and the cup, Jesus is showing us that the way he provides us with this provision, that in order to be this perfect provision for us, that his body had to be broken for us, that his blood had to be shed for us. That he is God's gracious ultimate provision for us by going to the cross, where he was broken that we might be blessed, where he was poured out that we might be filled up, where he died in our place that in him we might find true life, so that whoever believes in him, whoever comes to him in faith, will never hunger or thirst again, or receive eternal. Perfect provision and satisfaction in abundance in Christ. As John Owen put it, as he wrote in his great book, Communion with God, he said, Because of his fullness, Christ has all sufficiency in himself to be to the soul all that the soul desires. Is the soul weak? Christ is its strength. Is the soul ignorant? Christ is its wisdom. Is the soul guilty? Christ is its righteousness and justification. The great sin of believers is that they do not make as much use of Christ's bounty as they might. Every day we ought to take from him mercy in abundance. Supplies from Christ do not fail, but our faith fails in receiving them. Supplies in Christ do not fail, but our faith fails in receiving them. And so that is the question before us this morning as we read this text, as we prepare to come around the Lord's table. Because we are all like sheep without a shepherd. But in his compassion, Christ has come to bring us the gracious provision of God. We are all lost in the wilderness of sin and death. Yet in his compassion, Christ himself has come to supply for us A gracious provision we could never earn or achieve ourselves. He has come to bring the compassionate and gracious provision of God. So the question this morning is, will you receive this provision? Will you trust in this compassion? Will you you make use of this gracious bounty in Christ? Will you take from him mercy in abundance? Or will you try to be filled up and satisfied somewhere else? Because God's supply in Christ never fails. But will our faith fail in receiving him? I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this provision this grace, this compassion you have revealed in Christ. That as we see a display of his power in this text, in this miracle, Lord, that this display is meant to show us uh, not just the power that Christ has, but the provision that Christ brings in himself. That in him we have a satisfaction that will last for eternity, that will fill us up like nothing else will, that will bring us true security, true life. So Lord, help us to take of this abundance, to receive this mercy in Christ. Help us not to look elsewhere to be filled up or to be satisfied, not to look to other places or other people or other things for security, not to look to ourselves to provide the hope and the life and the salvation that we need, but help us to turn from all of those things, to turn and rest in the provision that is ours in Christ, in your grace and in your compassion and in your love, sending him to feed us our bread of life. Lord, as we sing now and as we come around your table, remind us through these symbols, through this song, remind us of the truth of the grace, the compassion, the satisfaction, the salvation that is ours in Christ, whose body was broken for us, whose blood was shed for us, to bring us your gracious provision. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, please stand, and we'll sing one more song, and then we'll uh, celebrate communion together. As we come to this time of communion around the Lord's table Uh, I just want to start by uh, reading another uh, short passage here from from John Owen uh, in his book Communion with God Owen writes moreover Christ has brought that everlasting righteousness which will abundantly satisfy any hungry soul after that hungry soul has gone to many a barren tree for food and found none Christ abounds in precious and pleasant graces, which I may take and eat. In fact, he calls me to eat and to go on eating until I am full. And so as we come around the Lord's table, what we were doing is we were coming around symbols, the bread and the cup, Um, and these symbols uh, represent nothing in and of themselves, but they remind us of the satisfaction, uh, the, the satisfaction we have in Christ himself. That in his body broken for us and his blood shed for us, we truly receive the provision, the satisfaction of God's grace, the salvation of our souls, the forgiveness of our sins. And so we invite you this morning to to take and eat uh, these symbols as a reminder of what it means to receive God's provision in Christ. That in him our graces, our riches, our provisions, our supplies that can never run out, that bring true and lasting security and salvation. And so we invite you to participate in this communion with us if, you're, uh, if you have professed faith in Christ, if you've made that profession. And if you're unsure about these things, about what that means or, or anything that we've shared, we ask that you take this time to reflect and think and uh, pray or, or reflect on what that might mean to, to think about or receive the grace and mercy, the provision of God in Christ. So as, as the elements are handed out, we'll uh, pray for the bread and we'll pass out the bread and receive it. And when we take the bread, we take it and then receive it and eat it individually. Uh, But then our pattern is after we pray and pass out the cup, that we hold on to the cup um, and we drink it together as a symbol of our unity in Christ. So allow me to pray for the bread. Merciful Father, we thank you for this time of communion for these symbols which remind us of the, the body of Christ broken for us, of how in order for him to be our bread of life, he needed to be broken on the cross and that he willingly went to the cross in our place to be broken for our sin, to receive the wrath that we deserved so that we can be restored, we can be forgiven, we can be made whole in Christ. So may this time of communion, this time of remembrance be a fruitful time for us to reflect in our own hearts on the provision you've uh, given us in Christ whose body was broken for us. In his name we pray amen Precious Father, we thank you for this cup, which is a symbol, a reminder of the blood of Christ, the blood of the covenant, which, is, which was poured out for many. Thank you for sending your Son to provide in the shedding of his blood, cleansing for our sins, to provide for us a righteousness that we can never earn for ourselves, to wash us clean, to make us innocent in your sight, that we can stand in your presence with boldness, with confidence, with joy, through our faith in Christ. Help us now, Lord, to reflect and pray and rejoice together in the gift of your Son who shed his blood for us. In his name, amen. Let's drink together and thanks to God for His gracious provision in Christ. Amen. Well, again, if you have any questions about anything that's been shared, if you'd like to talk, I'll be by the door as you are on your way out. But really glad you've come to join us. Don't feel like you have to rush off. Um, but as we've celebrated today our our communion you know in christ Uh, we also celebrate our communion our unity together as a church so part of that is fellowship part of that is uh, sharing and encouraging one another so feel free to stay and participate in that as well but as we go please uh, stand for a final word of benediction now may the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god the father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.